0: crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they said to him and called, called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around about him at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us illumination tonight as we look at this story and help us to be mindful of the teaching that Jesus presents to us in this passage about his own kingship, about the spirit, and about what it means to be followers of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, somehow, there always seems to be questions linked to uh, this passage, questions that people always want to ask. And the question really is very simple. How do I know that I know that I know that I have not committed the unpardonable sin? Right? It's always the question that's asked. How do I know that I've not committed the unpardonable sin? Now, oftentimes people think, well, you know what? In In the past... I've used the Lord's name in vain. Is that what it means to commit the unpardonable sin? I've done this or I've done that. What is it, this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to do this? And so there's a couple of questions that really just kind of lurk around this particular text. Questions like, can you commit the unpardonable sin by accident? Can you accidentally do this and then for the rest of your life, There is no way that you can experience forgiveness of sins. Or what if you committed this unpardonable sin before you even heard the gospel? So then can you or can you not be saved? And how do you know? What's the criterion for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How do you know whether or not you have done something or said something that has committed this unpardonable sin? So when we look at this important text together because it's going to tell us a tremendous amount about Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, it's going to tell us about Jesus and his kingdom, about the, the requirements for one who's going to be included in the kingdom of Christ. Uh, it's going to tell us about the, the power of Christ over evil. It's going to tell us about the nature of, of Jesus' warfare. We don't often talk about that the nature of Jesus' warfare against the kingdom of Satan, and what it means to commit the unpardonable sin. So all of that stuff is what we're looking at as we begin to unpack this particular story together. So let's begin with the first of these. True faith, this is the first principle, true faith acknowledges Jesus' kingship. True faith acknowledges Jesus' kingship. Look back at verse 20 with me says, Then he went home, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. <coughs> 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Now, verse 20, Jesus returns. It says home. Most people think that what he's referring to is actually Capernaum. He's not returning to Nazareth, uh, where they basically tried to shove him off Mount Precipice. He's returning to Nazareth. He's returning to this home that's probably referring to the center or the headquarters of his Galilean ministry there by the sea. And so again, as always when Jesus parks himself anywhere, the crowds begin to gather and probably because they want to watch him. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to see what he hear what he's going to say. They want to watch him heal people, they want to watch him cast out demons, they want to watch him have these religious theological debates with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, now listen to what it says there in the text. We typically we just pass over these kinds of things. But it says It says in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, I just pause on that because it's very important. We don't typically think about it, but uh, the scribes, it says, came down from Jerusalem. This is just very much Jewish language in the way that they describe this. Because Jerusalem was the city of the great king, so wherever you go, you're always going down. You're always going down. It's always down morally, down altogether. And so that's the reason you have in the psalms, you have these psalms of ascent. Because they would take these these hymns or these psalms and they would sing them as they would travel up to Jerusalem. As they're going up, they're making ascent or aliyah. They're going up to the city of the great king. And so even here we see this, this kind of this expectation. They're leaving Jerusalem, they're going down. In fact, they're actually going up. With, in regards to altitude, <laughs> they're going north and they're going up in altitude toward the Sea of Galilee from the city of Jerusalem. So it doesn't matter the altitude so much, it's the presence of God, that's what they're focused upon. And, and the scribes, they, they totally misunderstand that they're actually making ascent to Capernaum. They're leaving Jerusalem, but they're actually not going down from Jerusalem, they're going up from Jerusalem because, Why? Because the great king is actually in Capernaum. That's why. It's not about the city, it's about the king. And so they completely missed this. So what are the scribes saying? What do they say? They say something extremely theological here in these these comments. They say that he is Beelzebuble. Now, who in the world is Bealzebel? Or Beelzebub? Whichever translation you're using? Anybody? It's a weird name. Probably not one you'd borrow to name your child. The name Beelzebub, written also Beelzebul, um, is actually not found anywhere in all of the Jewish literature. So it's a little bit strange, a little bit interesting. It's a derivative, is what most people believe, a derivative of the name Baal Zebub. Baal Zebub, which was actually the god of Ekron. If you remember, where is Ekron? Back in the Old Testament, Ekron was a part of the Philistine nations. It was one of the large cities there on the uh, the coastal plain. And so this Baal-Zebub was actually their their city deity. And uh, the only actual reference that we have to this particular god is in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 2 down to verse 4. Now listen to this. This is about a king in Israel. King. Now Ahazah fell through the lattice, he's the king, fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baal-Zabub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this illness. But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel? That you're going to inquire of Baal-Zabab, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So you think about that. Here's the reference point of this Philistine deity. So what are the scribes suggesting? What are they saying? Well, this this is theological mudslinging happening right now. This is exactly what's happening. Jesus is healing. He's casting out demons. And they say that he is none other than the Philistine god of Ekron, Baal zeba So they're actually saying that Jesus is as anti-Yahweh as you can get. You're as anti-Yahweh as it gets. He's the demon god of the Philistines. The most hated of all of Israel's enemies. The Philistines of all of those enemies that they used to have... This takes the cake. So he's not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. He's not the one who has been given the rights of kingship by the the spirit of Yahweh. No, he's the anti-Yahweh. That's who he is. So what they're saying is they're rejecting his claims. They're rejecting his anointing. They're rejecting the spirit who signified his anointing. They're rejecting his claim to the throne of Israel as the seed, the legitimate seed of David. So in essence, what they're saying is that if there is a God in Israel, it certainly isn't you. That's what they're saying. So, what does Jesus do? He responds with the same kind of condemnation that Yahweh did, doesn't he? Just like the king, all those who refuse to recognize the kingship of God in Jesus Christ will die and they will not be redeemed. Just like what he said to King Ahaziah, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So friends, unbelief has consequences. Unbelief is not just vocalized. It's not just in something that you say. That's what we're continually learning about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the things that you say it's not just the things that you do. It's all of it. It's it's a lifestyle of unbelief. Unbelief is lived out every single day. Unbelief is a refusal to submit to the kingship of Christ as savior, as lord. And true faith acknowledges Jesus's kingship. Look at number 2. Jesus's kingship means that he has power over Satan. Look at verse 23. me and he called them to him and said to them in parables how can satan cast out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand and if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand and if satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but he is but is coming to an end but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house Okay, now notice what he says in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Jesus asks them a question, doesn't he? Just like every good rabbi. Whenever you're accused of something or when somebody asks you a question, you don't answer the question. You just ask them a the question and so that they can figure out the answer for themselves. Now, it's an important question. A question that, that completely undermines their accusation about him being Zebub. How can Satan exercise himself? How can he do this? doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever but it's worse than that it goes actually beyond (coughs) just this individual spiritual entity called satan what about satan's kingdom so satan's exercising what about his own kingdom this doesn't seem to make any sense look at verse 24 he says if a kingdom is divided against itself he's talking about satan's kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand and if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand i mean it's like It's like playing tic-tac-toe with yourself, right? I mean, you have to be a real dummy to win. Most of the time, it's cats. At least all of the times that I have played tic-tac-toe by myself, it's always cats. Why? Well, because hopefully you kind of know what you're thinking, right? If you don't, maybe there's a padded room for you somewhere. But the reality is that's the same thing. Satan can't exercise himself. Say can't can't fight against his own kingdom. What would be the point of all of that? What would be the point of giving up all of that control? Why would you want to defeat yourself? Why would he want to do this? I mean he has he has people listening to him. He has people listening. He has has a system of deception in place. He has false gods propped up in the high places. He has people scared of of death, scared of spirits, scared of ghosts, scared of diseases, storms, seas, whatever. What would be the point of systematically removing your control over people's lives? Well, the only thing that makes sense is that someone has arrived who is more powerful than Satan. And how do we know that? Well, because Satan's losing. Satan's losing his power center. Satan's, he's giving up territory because of the power of this other one. He's losing control over individual people. He's losing control over cultures. He's, he's scrambling to maintain status quo. I mean, that's what you see every single time Jesus encounters a demon. What happens? They begin to plead and beg and ask and what happens? Jesus doesn't give in. No, he doesn't give in to them. He doesn't give them anything. He's the powerful one. The God of Israel who wrecks Satan's world. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus' kingship means that he has power over Satan. And, the, and his kingdom, <coughs> the act of his kingdom, is an outright attack on the kingdom of Satan. Now, look at number three. Jesus' kingship is an attack against Satan's rule. So not only is he powerful and able to do it, but as he inaugurates his kingdom, he's actually on the offensive, pushing back the kingdom of Satan. Uh, one commentator says that the defeat of evil spirits was for Mark the represent, representative deed showing the authority of Jesus and the nature of the kingdom of God. So listen to what he says in verse 27. This is Jesus. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house now, i love the way that jesus describes the offensive attack upon satan's kingdom now, i don't think the phrase when he uses the phrase strong man is is really that significant i mean if you've ever read piercing the darkness you know, frank peretti thought it was significant of course it's fiction right Um, But the strong man was like the big deal, right? The big deal demon. Um, But I don't think it's a significant, it's not a name. Jesus is just describing a situation here. It's even a parable, as he says. Uh, So you have, in this parable, you have a really big dude, right? This guy, maybe he's a warrior. Maybe he's just really, really fierce and strong, a strong man. A guy who nobody would want to mess with, especially in his own house, Right? It's like fighting in your own territory. Like you know your land, you know your place. Fighting in someone else's house, they have all of the advantage. They they know where the weapons are stashed. They know where the corners are. They know how to take you out, right? This is a warrior. This is a fierce man. So you wouldn't want to go into this person's house and begin to try and take the things that he thinks are valuable, especially if he's just standing in the living room watching you do it. How foolish would that be? How stupid would you have to be to go into a man's house and try to rob him while he's standing there looking at you? What would you have to do if you're going to have success? You have to tie him up, right? You have to take him out of the equation. You have to take away the threat. And the only way you can do that is by binding that person, taking care of him. And then and only then will you be able to plunder his house and take his stuff. So... You see, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. It's a parable, but this is exactly what he's doing. He's not referring to one strong man, Satan, as though Satan was the only strong man. He's referring to the demonic powers. Jesus has been anointed as king over Israel by the Holy Spirit of God and he's entering into the kingdom of Satan through the inauguration of his own kingdom. And it would be silly for Jesus to think that the message will be able to penetrate the darkness or or that he would be able to steal away the valuable lives of people living under demonic control if he did not at first bind the strong man. This is the reason that the preaching of the gospel and the exercising or the expulsion of the demonic seem to go hand in hand. Because the preaching of the gospel is an offensive against the demonic powers. Paul recognized the connection between the preaching of the gospel and and demonic offensive attacks. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the very act of preaching is in some sense exposing the darkness, the demonic darkness, over the eyes of unbelievers. And so Jesus, he goes on, he preaches the gospel, and he's plundering the house of Satan even as he does it. That's what he's doing. He's systematically tying them up and taking what is most valuable to them, the control that they have over people's lives this is why Mark highlights this paired activity. Mark chapter 1. We've already talked about it. Chapter 1 verse 39. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee. Preaching in their synagogues. And casting out demons. So just to recap. True faith acknowledges Jesus' kingship. Jesus' kingship means he has power over Satan. Jesus' kingship is an attack against Satan's rule. And finally... The denial of Jesus' kingship is unpardonable. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. They were, for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent, they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was gathering around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about around those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, too often what we do with this passage is we take it out of its context, and then it it mutates into some scary, unknowable sin that any one of us could commit at any moment. But in truth, it's not that way. Remember what has already happened. The Spirit of God has anointed Jesus as God's chosen Messiah. And that cannot be separated from what he's talking about, the Spirit, in this passage. Only two chapters ago, chapter 1, this happens. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John of the Jordan And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The scribes were blaspheming the Spirit of God. How? How were they blaspheming the Spirit of God? Well, they said that Jesus was anti-Yahweh. They were refusing to believe that he was God's anointed Messiah. And the word blasphemes here, it's a a past tense verb. And it's it's in a tense, I don't want to get too crazy with the Greek stuff, but it's in a tense and a mood that seems to be contingent. Um, The action is, is objectively possible, but not necessarily reality. So for an example, something like this. In this particular mood. If the child runs, he will escape. Right. So it's contingent. If he runs, he will escape. Now, because it's a past tense, which in Greek would be the aorist tense, and because it's of this nature, the mood, that I'm trying to talk about, uh, he says, if, if basically, an example would be, if the child runs and keeps running, he will escape. So what the aorist says is that the, the tense itself doesn't, it says it happened in the past, doesn't give any kind of indication whether or not it's going to stop in the future. So it's kind of an ongoing situation. So, if you look at what we're talking about, if someone blasphemes and continues blaspheming the Spirit of God, they will not be forgiven. So it's not just a once-and-done kind of thing. It's a continual life lived and vocalized in opposition to the kingship of Jesus Christ. So without Christ... Without submission to Jesus, is there any other way of salvation? No. There's no way that you can be pardoned from your sins. Acts 4, chapter twelve, chapter 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So directly following this encounter, we go back to the family members. Here's the family of Jesus, the physical family of Jesus, who thought Jesus was an, a, a nutso? He thought he was crazy for saying all the things that he was saying. And they come to his house there in Capernaum. And Jesus is told that his family's outside. Now he responds. He says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see the, the contrast here? Those who refuse to submit to the kingship of Christ, those who refuse to recognize Him as the anointed Messiah, they are not a part of the kingdom. They are not a part of the family. But only those who do the will of God, those are the ones who will be in the kingdom. Those who willingly submit to Him as King. So, can you unconsciously or by accident commit the unpardonable sin? No. No. Because it's not just something you say with your mouth. And you're just like, oh, oh man, I messed up. And now for all of eternity, that one thing that I said, that's going to affect, no. That's not what the unpardonable sin is. It's not something that you just say with your mouth. No, it's something that you're doing with your life. It's a, it's a rebellion against who God is through Jesus Christ. It's a refusal to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's a refusal to repent and believe in the gospel. It's a refusal to accept his forgiveness and salvation that he gives at the cross. And it's an embracing of your will and not God's will. That's what it is. And that's why it's the sin that cannot be forgiven. Because the only way that we can have life everlasting, as Acts 4 says, is through Jesus Christ. And if we're unwilling to submit to Jesus Christ, friends, that is the only unpardonable sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. Thank you for how it it so beautifully shows the kingship of our Lord. And God, would you help us as your people to be reminded of the different truths that we found tonight. That, Lord Jesus, you are more powerful than any demonic entity. We can rest in your strength and your authority and your power. And we can know that as you advance your kingdom in this world, Lord, you are pushing back the darkness. You are pushing back the darkness with your power and with your gospel. And so God, help us to trust you in the midst of that and to rest in that. And Father, give us us assurance through your spirit that we would not look at this text and And be so very scared that we've done something by accident. But Lord, let us look at our lives. Examine the scriptures and look at our lives to determine whether or not we are fruit-bearing disciples. Whether or not we are submitting to the will of our God. Whether or not we are trusting in the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let that be the assurance that we find. And we thank you for who you are and for what you continue to do through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name.